0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Well, we're coming to the end of the the sermons that I wanted to do on Christology, and so we've covered Jesus in it from various aspects. We've covered his divinity. We've looked at his humanity. His humiliation, his exaltation. We've looked at his federal headship, his impeccability, his session, his wrath. And I want to conclude here with, perhaps this is the broadest or the most overarching category of all, and that's the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus Christ. And glory is one of those words that that is, is hard to define. It's hard to um, encapsulate. R.C. Sproul, in, on the word, says setting forth a precise definition of the word glory is not an easy task. And he, 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 It's like many theological concepts. It, it's a concept that we have an awareness of. But can't necessarily describe it in all of its fullness. What is it that we speak about when we speak about the glory of God or the glory of Jesus Christ? Um, Piper said the same thing, defining the glory of God is impossible, he says, and then in the next paragraph he defines it. (laughs) Um, He says it's defining the word glory is like defining the word beauty it's actually, it's more like defining the word beauty than the word basketball. Basketball, we could give an example of, we could pick it up, we we could hold it in our hands, but beauty, how do you define beauty? It's sort of an elusive concept. And glory is the similar way. Now, what do we... Where do we learn about the glory of God first? Creation. Creation. Psalm 19. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And so the creation is... One of the first things that teaches us about the glory of God, when we witness the, uh, how many of us as children, you know, laid down in our yard and looked up at the clouds and wondered, you know, you just wonder at it. You look up at the the stars at night and your thoughts go cosmic, right? And And there's... And it's because, it's not because you're importing some meaning into that. It's because the meaning of what's above you is shouting something at you, right? It's teaching you something about the glory of God. And that's what Psalm 19 um, proves there. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, right? That's why some of us like physics, right? It tells us of the glory of God. That's why some of us like science, um, it's the study of the testimonies of God through his creation. Um, Vern Poitras said, God has made the whole world to be a theater to display his glory. It's a theater, right? That's why God fashioned this world to be a theater. And what's playing in that theater? The glory of God. The glory of God. I mean, the, the, the brightness of the sun. Every time I see a rainbow. It shouts at me, right? Not only does it shout God's covenant faithfulness, but it also shouts the glory of God. Look what he has made. Look how it testifies of him. But still, that doesn't really help us define glory. What is it when we speak? How would we encapsulate that in a sentence, the glory of God? Now... There's also this in Scripture. So not only do we have creation that's constantly testifying to us about the glory of God, but sometimes the Scriptures speak to the special presence of God being his glory. So, for example, you remember when Moses finishes the tabernacle, right? And they're about to worship. And the glory of the Lord... Descends upon the tabernacle. Exodus 40, the very last verses of Exodus, make mention of this. 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And what. So the glory of God settles there, and what is the response of those who are around? Well, it says Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was such an impressive, mind-boggling, intense experience that, that he felt in his sinfulness that he could not approach the tabernacle throughout all their journeys whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle the sons of israel would set out but if the cloud was not taken up then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up for throughout all their journeys the cloud of the lord was on the tabernacle by day and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of israel and so so we see we see that and, and we could go to the temple, right, when the temple is is consecrated and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. There are other times when, when the glory of the Lord appears. And and here it's described as a cloud. Right, so it, but, but this is the special presence of God in some sense. You'll hear people mention it as the Shekinah glory. There are two main words in Scripture used for our English word Glory. Two main words. The Hebrew word is kabod. It is, it means weightiness. It means substance. It means importance. It means gravitas, right? It means abundance. It means fullness. I mean, that, that, but, but generally it's weightiness that that word is referring to the weightiness, the gravity of the Lord. And then in the Greek it's doxa. Like in uh, Revelation fifteen eight, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And the word there is doxa. doxa or it's where we, we get doxology. Um, so a definition of glory, what is it that, how would you encapsulate this, this notion of the glory of God? In a sentence, so what is the glory of God, your five-year-old child asks you? How do you answer that? Because that's the sort of question that five-year-olds ask you. And they really want an answer. How, would, how have you explained that, Sarah? God's greatness? God's greatness? Okay, that's a little bit different. Everything that makes him great. I like that a little better. That's getting there. It's, yeah. The is the so, the Justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. Holiness, truth. Right. It's everything okay. So it's the it's the fullness of all of god's perfections that's how that when we use the, the word glory of god we're we're saying it's all that he is in all of his perfections all the time forever right so it's this expansive glorious word and so um and and jesus christ the son of god the the, the risen glorified Son of God, has a glory that will shine through the universe forever. Right? Again, here's the definition I came across of the glory of God that I think is helpful. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections. It's the infinite beauty and greatness. So it's perceivable beauty, right? When we say beauty, it's an aesthetic term and it's something we sense and see and, and experience, right? And so the infinite beauty and greatness, the greatness is the fullness of God's many perfections, right? So it's the perceivable, understandable to a certain extent as, as much as finite minds can, can understand infinite perfections. It is that thing, right? So we've all got it now, right? We've got our definition of the glory of God locked in. Well, verses that speak now, if we take that as our our definition, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections. To say the glory of God is to compact down into a few words the entire perfections in, in all of its angles of the living God. Glory of God is a way for us to compact into this incredibly dense phrase God's awesome perfections, right? It is to make the expression of God's infinite greatness manageable. Otherwise, we'd have to go through a string of glories and attributes forever to come to the end of a definition. So it's this whole perfection it's his whole perfection that is perceivable. Now, verses that speak directly of Jesus' glory, right? John 17, 24, speak to us of Jesus' glory. And John 17, you remember, is that prayer of Jesus, that, that sweet, intimate, intense prayer between Jesus and the Father before his crucifixion. The next chapter is the Garden of Gethsemane and his arrest, and he is praying at this point. And in 1724, he says, Father, I desire that they also, he's speaking of believers, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Notice there are two things. One, the glory of Jesus Christ will be seen by those who believe in him. And that is a glory that was given to him by his father. At least that's what John said. My glory which you have given me. And how is that glory bestowed on him? Well, it says, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And when you speak of before the foundation of the world, what you mean is eternity past, before the creation, before time. It's a way of saying you have always loved me. And so the glory of, of the Father is put upon the Son through the love that they have for one another and perfectly reflect in one another. And that is a bestowal, in a sense. James 2 1 calls Jesus the Lord of glory. And what is the word Lord? I mean, that's a word we just throw around, right? We just, we bandy it about, but don't think about what it means. What does it mean to call Jesus the Lord of glory? Yeah, it's like all those things, the, the, the ruler, the master, the source, the, the, um, the controller of, right? The, the manifester of, of glory. That's what Jesus is. He's the Lord of glory, just like he's the Lord of lords, right? He's the Lord that rules over other lords. This is the Lord of glory. This is the Lord of the full perfections of, of God. Luke 19 you remember that the, the the a subset of the apostles were shown something special that the other apostles didn't see what was that i mean we just throw it out there well they saw the glory of jesus what luke 19:28 wait is it luke Where's the transfiguration is it matthew nineteen my Bible doesn't have cross references some somebody find it yeah luke nine twenty eight there it is some eight days after these sayings. He took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed. It's interesting. A cloud. A cloud like that that settled on the tabernacle, a cloud like that that settled on the temple. A cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Which seems to be an appropriate response to all the manifold perfections of God being manifested before you. They were afraid as they entered, then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. How hard would that have been for those apostles to not share what they had seen? What an encouragement it would have been for them to see the glory of Jesus displayed in a way that hadn't happened to the other apostles. Now, that's, it's similar, remember, to Moses. Moses goes, in in Exodus 33, Moses asks to see what? He asks to see the glory of God. And what does God say to him? You can't see my face, because no one can live and see my face, but you will see my back. You will get a glimpse, right? And what does God do? He shields him, right? It, it uses that anthropomorphic language and it says that God placed his hand over him to shield him so that the glory wouldn't undo Moses. But he saw a glimpse of his glory. And here these apostles are standing in that, that glory cloud and they're standing and seeing Jesus unveiled before them in some sense. And it's glorious. It's it's gleaming. It's whiteness. It's cloud. It's light, it's purity, it's holiness, right? It's truth. It's all those attributes of God being manifested there somehow physically. Hebrews. I mean, you think about that. Um, God is spirit. Right, But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so we would say that any image of the invisible God is Jesus and his glory being manifested. So even that glory cloud, we would say, is the Son of God. Hebrews 1, 3... God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And that is quite a description of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, upholds all things by His word and His power. And so there it is. The full—I mean, what we speak of glory, and we say it's the beauty and the greatness of the manifold perfections of God. And here, Jesus is the radiance of that. Okay, He's like—I mean, if there's gilding of the lily. Calling something the radiance of God's glory is like gilding the lily times a million. Right? You know what that phrase means, gilding the lily. Lilies are beautiful. They don't need to be gilded. You don't need to add gold to a lily. They're just beautiful in themselves. But if you add gold to a lily, it's like crazy beautiful. Right? So this is gilding the lily. This is Jesus being the radiance of the glory of God. Okay? Matthew Twenty five thirty one. 25, 31, when Jesus returns, how does he return? I mean, I've given you all the answers. All the answers tonight are glory. Matthew 25, 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory... Which means that when he came, incarnated as a man, right, through the woman. There was a setting aside of glory, right? There was an emptying that took place there. But now when he comes, when he returns, at the end of the days, on the great day of judgment, he comes in his glory, and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And his glory will just divide. Right? And his glory will reign. And it will shine. Right? And it will, it will call some to rejoice. And dance and sing. It will call others To ask even the rocks and the mountains to fall down upon them. Right. So the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is something that you as... A believer in Jesus Christ, it should be something that you have, in a sense, experienced. Right? There, there should, if our eyes have been opened up to the glory of God, if, if our eyes have been opened up, if our ears are unstopped, if our hearts are made different so that we know Jesus Christ and his glory, then, then believers should be those who have actually experienced that. Right? There should be, um, there should be a, a gravitational pull that we can't resist to the glory of God in Jesus for the Christian. Right, Unbelievers, though, are, are enraptured by a different glory. What are unbelievers? What's a glory? What's the glory to the unbeliever? And this is ironic. Self, that's part of it. Creation. Creation. They make an exchange, right? They've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. So they make this exchange, one glory for another, the glory of God, the incorruptible God, and change it. But what is what is creation testifying to? The glory of God. And so all their exchange does is condemn them. Because that exchange is testifying about the other glory that they've denied and suppressed in unrighteousness. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing that, that the thing that they think is glorious, this creation, the material world, that that, that is all there is, would be the thing that condemns them because they're, they're recognizing its glory. And yet we say, it, it does have a certain glory, but it's because it's testifying to the glory that made it, that created it, that's higher than it, that is truly glorious. Therefore, very interesting also, given what I said this morning, that Paul ties to that degrading passions. Homosexual sin is the best, highest expression of the worship of creation. It is the height of the worship of creation and exchanging the glory of God for the glory of creation, for the glory of man. Um. I'll also say this: what, what what difference does this make in our walk? What? And, and I would say that for the Christian, there's a craving to to see this glory. That there should be the same question that Moses asked: "Show me your glory. Show me this glory," because because so much of what I see and experience in my my sin is not glorious. And so, show me your glory. And so, but but. But conversion is like that, right? Conversion is radical. The glory of God must be seen now. The glory of God must be acknowledged, seen, experienced, loved, craved. I don't know how to put it, and, and I don't want to say what's wrong, but, but it, it, um, I don't trust the testimony of those who are bored with Jesus. I just don't trust their testimony God is glorious, Jesus is glorious. He's created us and if we tr- have the spirit living within us who 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 is God, knows God, reveals God to us, then then you know people who are bored with Jesus, bored with the son of God. I just don't trust their testimony. It cannot it cannot be genuine. right or those who are uninterested you know maybe bored is is too strong but just uninterested sort of numb or or half devoted split minded between several glories right the the converted person has seen god in jesus by faith He is not uninterested, not bored, not distracted, not longing for other things above this perfect glory, Jesus Christ. If the glory of God is visible in this world, how could his people, his adopted children, not see it? I mean, to behold the glory of Christ, if you think about that, to behold the glory of Christ, that could be a a good working definition of regeneration, of new birth. Boom. You see the glory of Christ. I was blind, now I see. See what? Christ in all of his glory. That's what I see. And so no longer is there this, like, half-hearted devotion. No longer am I defined by any other pursuit other than this one? I want Jesus Christ, and I want to see his glory. That's what I live for. I want to see it manifested in the lives of other people. I want to see it manifested in the lives of my children. I want to see it in creation, right? I want to see see it everywhere. I want to see it in the, the ministry of his word. I want to see it especially as it's revealed in heaven. When we're glorified and in the presence of Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness, with the angels who are pronouncing his glory and his honor, right? And they're all singing it loudly with loud drums, cymbals, harps, trombones, and electric guitars. Owen said beholding the glory of God is the life and reward of our souls. It's the reward of our souls. And that is true. If you are a Christian, you you believe that that is true. You want more of the glory of Jesus Christ. You want to see it, you want to know it. That's why you look in his word where it's especially revealed and all of its it's wonder Right, I, I think, um, I've shared this before, I think of it often. Um, Edwards' testimony. Jonathan Edwards' testimony. Jonathan Edwards, he was a brainiac. He was a, he was a dopey pastor, right? He was boring in the pulpit, right? He made people sleep. But he wanted to, he wanted to know Christ in this manner that I'm speaking of. He gives this testimony, once as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737. So he gets up on his horse, he gets out, and he's doing it because he needs fresh air. This is constitutional. Having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer. He wants to see the glory of Jesus, right? He made time to get off his horse and go out and contemplate and pray. Do you make time? Do you want to know the glory of God? Do you pursue it in this manner? It's glorious. He's glorious. And he has been revealed to you. And so he he goes on. He says, I had a view that for me was was extraordinary. Of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love and meek, gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought In all conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears, weeping aloud. Do you know that? Do you pursue that? Do you want to contemplate Jesus Christ in his glory? Right. Whether or not you cry, I don't care whether or not there are of tears. I don't care. You know, different different ones of us are going to manifest the wonder of this in different ways. Right. Some of you are going to go write a poem. Some of you are going to paint a painting. Some of you will dance. Right. Some of you will weep. But Christ is glorious, and it can be seen and known through the Scripture, right? Colossians 1.15, that poem of the glory of Jesus Christ. Go out on your horse in the middle of the woods. and Read Colossians 1.15 to 20. But stop and read it, and then read it for the first time after you've read it once, right? And then stop and think about it. And then pray through it. And then just stop and think on the glory of Jesus Christ. In in other words, worship him. Don't just read. Don't go through the motions. But stop and worship. That's what we don't take time to do. And so our thoughts of Jesus Christ are just weak and thin. They're just... They're, they're like those seven... Gaunt cows that the seven fat cows ate. Right now the vision in some sense will be cloudy. It is by faith. Right? We see through a glass darkly. But even that is still glorious. But think of when it becomes sight. In the age to come there's clarity. There's no more cloudiness. It's by sight. We behold him in that glass darkly. But we shall see him face to face then we will see the face of God, right? It will not be hidden to us as it was to Moses. And so with all parts of our faith, it must be stirred up. Again, Owen, no man, this is is my point tonight, no man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter who does not in some measure behold it by faith now, here in this world. Grace is a necessary preparation for glory, and faith is a necessary preparation for sight. And so faith sees the glory of of God in Jesus Christ. There is greater glory in Jesus Christ than all the combined greatness of every empire and every entertainment and every pleasure of this world. And more to hold your attention than all of those things. There's more greater glory in Jesus Christ than in all the powers of the world, than anything in all the created world, because he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the chief glory of this whole world. And so we will close... We'll go to Revelation chapter 21, and we see this beautiful picture of where the glory of God will rest in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 at 22. I saw no temple in it, speaking of the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? The glory of God will illumine the new Jerusalem. The manifold perfections of God will be a lamp by which we will know, experience, and bask in the love of God forever. And never come to the end of our scrutinizing of it, our studying of it, our learning from it, him. It is the wrong word. I mean him. But that glory by believers can be seen now and should be pursued. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would take the time to meditate and contemplate the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who has done such glorious work, but who is glorious in and of himself. I pray that our minds would be set on things above, that we would, that you would indeed show us yourself through the word, in your creation. Lord, I pray that we would, I pray and ask you to forgive us for wasting the time that we have and so often contemplating the lesser glories of the creation rather than the glory of Jesus Christ. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.